Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you so much for joining us and letting us be part of your day here at Midweek. Hope you are safe and well. Be careful. Thank you for being with us. Here's what we'll be talking about today. Trump administration does not appeal the Tenth Circuit Court ruling on small refinery exemptions. Great news for the biofuels industry. We'll talk with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Market reaction of the COVID-19 and everything else that's going on with the economy. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with INTL FC Stone, joins us on the program today. And we'll talk with Blake Hurst, President of Missouri Farm Bureau, about how COVID-19 is not only affecting uh, the general economy and the ag economy, but he'll come uh, with a perspective from a small business perspective. Uh, he owns a owns and operates a, a flower and plant business. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. We're getting that time of year when people like to flock to the stores to get the plants to put in their yards, plant their gardens. Uh, well, how will that be impacted this year? And that certainly then trickles down to producers like Blake Hurst and his small business. We'll get his reaction to all that coming up later in the program. But we'll start things off with DTN reporter Todd Neely. Todd, thank you for joining us. Wow, we have a lot to talk about. The Senate passes that $2 trillion a stimulus package, and there is some th- things in there, some money in there for agriculture. What do we know? I don't know if we have Todd. Todd, are you there? Can you hear me? I am. There you are. Hi. Right. This this uh, social distancing, uh, we're everybody in the really <laughs> lo- remote locations here, so uh, I'm glad we tracked you down. Are you, are you in your bunker at home? I am. I'm deep underground, at least 12 feet. <laughs> Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about that stimulus package, because there are some things in there for agriculture. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, you know, when you look at what came out last night, late last night, we're talking about some some good uh, some good financial help for the cattle industry, uh, USDA in many ways. Uh, You know, we've seen a lot of talk about uh, how rough the cattle markets have been lately. Uh, one of the one of the boosts to funding comes to the Commodity Credit Corporation, uh, about fourteen billion dollars of more authority for USDA there, and so that definitely is going to help. Um, it also includes nine point five billion dollars in assistance, uh, in particular for the livestock industry. So there's a lot of opportunities here, I think, uh, to give some relief to people in in, in the heartland. I think, uh, you know, when we look at how this all pans out along the way, you know, I don't know that we uh, if, if this isn't necessarily going to be enough, but it's going to be at least a start. And perhaps as we go forward, if there's more uh, discussion about further packages along the way, hopefully that uh, ag will be included in that as well. Well, Colin Woodall, CEO of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, was with us yesterday, and he made it clear that if there's another round of MFP payments, uh, cattle producers are going to want to be a part of that. Yeah, absolutely, You know, and it makes sense. I mean, when you're looking at the markets now, uh, you know, obviously everything has taken a hit, but cattle in particular, we've seen so much volatility, uh, so much question about whether uh, stockers and packers were going to be able to keep operations going amid the virus. Um, I definitely think uh, this is probably going to change the specter a little bit on, on another round of MFP. You know, um, there was talk that it might not happen, but uh, who would have thought at this point that uh, – 
something related again to China uh, may raise the specter when it comes to, uh, you know, having more payments. And so, yeah, I think as we keep going down the road here, I, I do believe they're going to have to discuss that third round of, or the fourth, whatever round we're on of payments here. I, I think it's definitely something that's going to be needed. All right, let's switch now to the administration not appealing the Tenth Circuit Court ruling on small refinery exemptions. This is certainly welcome news for the biofuels industry, which is really struggling right now. But I guess it's not entirely over because the uh, refineries are trying to make some kind of a legal challenge here. Yeah, definitely. You know, the three refineries that were subject to that uh, the lawsuit and the court decision that came down in January they all filed a, a, petio, a excuse me a petition yesterday in the same court looking for uh, a full hearing of the Tenth Circuit, which would include all the judges in the Tenth Circuit. Uh, the original ruling it was a unanimous decision of a three-judge panel, um, and we've seen already the statistics. It's pretty rare that this court will grant any uh, full petition before the for the entire circuit, and so I think yeah, chances are still pretty low that this is going to go anywhere in court. Uh, but just having the administration behind the industry at this point uh, deciding not to appeal, I think, is a, is a big deal. And so it's kind of set the track now for EPA. Uh, we don't know when a decision or an announcement might come on how they're going to handle the program. Uh, but I do think that now it's it's all in EPA's hands. Um, you know, I I think a court challenge still before the Supreme Court is an outside possibility. But even then, I the fact that EPA and DOJ looked at this and decided not to go, uh, you know, appeal just the Tenth Circuit uh, is is a pretty good sign. Some welcome news, some good news for the industry that is really struggling right now. Plants idling, uh, not buying corn, right. really having a ripple effect throughout the uh, uh, ag economy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we were we were uh, searching a lot of the other plant companies out there. Uh, yesterday trying to see what's going on. You know, a lot of plants have taken actions and um, to basically uh, limit public exposure and that sort of thing, things that you would expect. Um, but, yeah, I think if, if the days continue on this way, you know, we've seen the oil price war and all those things. If we keep down that track, uh, I do think you're going to see a real ripple effect in the industry. I, I do think that uh, as we go on forward through this, uh, you know, finding what's in the stimulus package exactly – uh, you kind of hope that something is there for ethanol. And I think, uh, you know, we're, we're not out of the woods by any means in this industry, but having this ruling yesterday in the court uh, definitely is a good step. For all its critics, I think people starting to realize how important that ethanol industry is and the various impacts it has throughout an economy. Oh, absolutely. And I think just the mere fact that we've seen gas prices go down and down uh, and then you see ethanol kind of inverted in the price. You know, ethanol futures have been higher than, than gasoline in many respects. And uh, it's it's a very interesting time. You know, when the oil prices fall, that's never a good thing for the industry. Um, and so just that, just that issue in itself is a big deal, you know, outside of all the concerns with the virus. And so um, I think, you know, things are going to start to slowly get back to normal. I know the administration is working uh, trying to get Saudi Arabia to back off of this price war. And so we'll see if anything comes from that. Well, we're going to talk more about the, the ethanol situation with Brian Jennings coming up next. But, Todd, thank you for being with us. Stay safe, and we'll talk again soon. All right. Thank you, Mike. You too. 
Todd Neely, DTN reporter. So a lot there on the biofuels front. We're going to talk with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Coming up next, this decision by the administration not to appeal that 10th Circuit Court ruling on small refinery exemptions certainly is good news. But where do we go from here? The industry is really struggling. We'll get a kind of a state of the industry from uh, Brian Jennings and uh, kind of try to look forward. What is the path forward to coming out of this for the ethanol industry? That's next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices, but they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications, and it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Some much-needed good news for the biofuels industry when the administration decided not to appeal the Tenth Circuit Court ruling on small refinery exemptions. Here to talk about it is Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Brian, thanks for joining us. Were you holding your breath last night as the deadline approached? Mike, I'm not going to lie. I, I was, it was a pretty sleepless night for me, and I kept checking my phone to see if there was any news. And what it turned out, hap- what turned out happening is the Department of Justice simply didn't appeal it. They didn't put out any statement, so we sort of had to wait until this morning to find out the news. But like you said, this is uh, desperately needed good news for our industry. We we felt like the law was on our side when we brought this case in the 10th circuit against those three refinery exemptions back in 2018 uh and we're really pleased that the trump administration will not appeal this decision now of course we need epa to make it really clear to everyone that they're going to take the precedent that this court case this court decision established and more narrowly apply the small refinery exemptions in the future. So that should limit the number of these refineries that are escaping their blending obligations under the renewable fuel standard. Yeah, I asked if you were holding your breath last night. So now you kind of hold your breath till you get that official word from EPA. Yeah, we're constantly holding our breath, unfortunately. There's always something that we're, we're waiting on. And we would have loved to have seen EPA come out you know, last night or this morning and just make it clear, hey, this 10th Circuit decision, which limits small refinery exemptions, is now the law of the land. We're going to apply this nationwide. It doesn't make sense to apply it just to those refineries in the 10th Circuit and not all around the country because then we have sort of two sets of rules on how these exemptions will be handled. So it makes all the sense in the world for EPA to apply this more narrow construct in the future nationwide, but but we don't have that that information yet or that confirmation from EPA. So we'll, we'll continue to press them on that. And those refineries are making some of a legal challenge, but it doesn't sound like they have a, a, a very good chance on theirs. 
What our law team tells us, Mike, is that despite the fact that the refiners themselves did appeal this decision in the Tenth Circuit, without the, the full force of the Trump administration behind them, without the Trump administration also appealing, the judges in the Tenth Circuit are um, highly unlikely to, to go along with a rehearing or an appeal. And so um, we feel really good about that. But again, I guess that's another hold, hold your breath moment. We'll have to wait and see. And, you know, there are other things we're concerned about, Mike. We've got We've got refineries pushing the Trump administration to find other sort of ways to waive the RFS through maybe the general waiver authority. Um, of course, we've got, you know, the, the COVID coronavirus concerns uh, and, and the just staggering economic impact that our industry is facing right now. So um, there's a lot on our plate right now. Our producers are very concerned about what the future looks like in terms of demand for ethanol. And so um, it's sort of all hands on deck, and we're, we're trying to work with Congress and the administration to, to be aware of the concerns that we have. Yeah, the challenges never end, that's for sure. We're talking with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Brian, throughout the history of the ethanol industry, there have been plenty of peaks and valleys. Is this one of the deeper valleys the industry has faced? I think it is, unfortunately. I've been around the industry for 15, 16 years now, and the people I talk to, and just based on my own experience, I've never I've never seen things as ugly as they are today. Um, you know, one-third of the U.S. population is under a stay-at-home order. Uh, people aren't driving. Demand for, for all transportation fuels is is going to be down considerably. We've talked about demand destruction the last couple of years. We're going to see it on steroids here for the month of March, maybe the month of April. How long will this last? I think that's one of the concerns that producers have. And right now, Mike, everyone is making a contingency plan if they operate an ethanol plant. Do we slow down? Do we shut down? What do we do with our workforce? How long are we willing to burn cash? Um, no one is making money in this market, and I think the real fear out there is that we just don't know how long this pain is going to last. Some are idling. Some are shutting down. That means they're not buying corn. That cuts off a market for farmers. That has an impact. It has a devastating impact at, at, at really the wrong time. I mean, farmers have been suffering for too long. Your listeners know this all too well um, for various reasons, trade wars, um, EPA's abuse of the small refinery exemption, what have you. And now to, to top it off, you're right. These, these ethanol producers are not going to be, they either quit buying corn this week or in the next couple of weeks, they're likely to quit buying corn. Um, even the most profitable plants out there um, are losing money and they're running out of storage space. Maybe they're still operating, uh, at full speed, but their storage tanks are full, and they get maybe one more turn of a unit train, uh, and then that's it. And they have nowhere else to put their fuel ethanol, and so they'll be faced with no other choice than to idle back or to shut down. Uh, and so we're going to need, this is an emergency, this is an economic catastrophe, we're going to need the federal government, as they're looking at these various pieces of legislation they're going to pass in the coming weeks, to look at rural America and, and to provide some financial help, there's really no way around it. 
In the stimulus package that the Senate passed last night, we know there's some help for agriculture in there, especially for uh, cattle producers. Is there anything in there that you know of right now that would help the ethanol industry? So what we're being told is that all energy-related provisions were stripped out of the bill. They were left on the cutting room floor. The oil sector was hoping for billions of dollars in spending authority uh, to fill up the strategic petroleum reserve. That was left out of the final bill. We were angling to make sure that renewable fuel producers could qualify for some of these emergency payments the Department of Agriculture is able to make by tapping into the Commodity Credit Corporation Fund, the CCC Fund. That language was left out of the bill that will be enacted by Congress today. Um, We can certainly lobby the Department of Agriculture for some help, but we need to be cognizant that, like you say, cattle ranchers are hurting right now. They're going to get a piece of that. Produce farmers are hurting. They're going to get a piece of that. Row crop sort of Title I commodity producers are obviously going to get a big piece of that. Um, I would say this. There will be other bites at the apple. Congress isn't going to pass three emergency bills and leave it at that. We believe there will be probably a fourth bill um, sometime in April, maybe even a fifth piece of legislation. It depends on how long the economy suffers. The economy grinds to a halt as we're trying to flatten the coronavirus curve. So we're not in this current package that the Senate and the House will pass today, but we're going to fight to be in future packages. And finally, tell us uh, how the ethanol industry is helping make hand sanitizers, which are so important right now through this uh, pandemic. Yeah, sort of a silver lining here, and and not every ethanol plant in the country is in a position to to pivot and do this, but but a handful are, and it certainly is helping. The demand for hand sanitizer is going through the roof, as you and your listeners know. A lot of producers were already set up to devote a small percentage of their production to either the beverage um, alcohol industry or industrial solvents, uh, hand sanitizer type end users already. And so those producers, especially if they're close to an urban area or they've established um, those, those, those customer relationships in those end markets, they are making some changes at, at their facilities. They're selling into that market. In some cases, we have ethanol plants donating alcohol for hand sanitizer uh, for for prisons and and for state governments. And so um, that's a silver lining. Uh, We want to get that good story out there. It's not a gigantic market. This isn't going to save our bacon. The volume for hand sanitizer is relatively small compared to the motor fuel marketplace. But it is something producers, some producers are pivoting to do. And um, we're glad that they're able to do that. Yeah, it shows the diversity of these plants. Uh, as you said, not all of them are able to do it, but uh, some are, and how they are helping out in this crisis we're going through now. As always, thanks, Brian. Stay safe. We'll talk Thank again you, soon. Thanks. Very good. Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. All right, up next, we look at the markets, the economic impact of all this with Arlen Suderman with INTL FC Stone. Stay with us on AOA.
information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Lots to talk about with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. Arlen, thank you for joining us. Interesting part of what's happening now through this uh, uh, COVID-19 crisis, we have this shift in our food purchasing from the uh, restaurant and food service sector to the retail sector. That then has an impact on commodities, right? What's happening with the wheat market, for instance? Yeah, exactly right. What we tend to see when people eat out is they tend to eat more meat in their in their diet, and they have a larger portions of meat, less grain, and less vegetable. Contrarily, when they eat at home, they tend to have smaller portions of meat, and they tend to eat more grains and more vegetables. And so what we're seeing now is a demand for really for everything as people stock up. Since they're not going to be eating at restaurants as much, they're going to be eating more at home as they stay at home. They're stocking up on everything, creating shortages. And that's really driving the meat market sharply higher right now. Uh, some unprecedented gains there in demand. and But that's expected to be more short-term demand. may go on for another week or two, but then slowly trail off. On the other hand, grain and oil seeds, uh, grain particular, uh, your breads, your crackers, uh, we've seen that soup sales are rising dramatically and the crackers to go with the soups, uh, breads, of various different types of breads. That's an initial surge of supply, but we expect to see a longer term demand there depending on how long people are at home as well. And mills are working kind of around the clock trying to meet that demand for flour and for baking, et cetera. And we expect that demand to continue, not just here in the United States, but we're seeing this trend kind of globally. And that's why the wheat market has had more strength here of late. Yeah, that's interesting how that, again, that ripple effect, uh, it is interesting. We talked yesterday with with Colin Woodall, CEO of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, and I was asking about that shift going on. He says, so far, you know, the uh, the demand has been so strong in the retail sector, as you alluded to, that it's offset uh, what they've lost in the restaurant uh, and food service sector. But as you pointed out, uh, you stock up on meat, and all of a sudden you get to a point where maybe the freezer is full, and then that buying slows down. Then what happens to the market? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's the fear. Now, we still have the demand ramping up from China, so that's going to soften the blow of softening domestic demand for meat down the road, I think, to some extent. But we still do expect to see that slump in domestic demand, and still an unknown how much we're going to see of that Chinese demand. The pork shipments to China are very strong. They basically have been for the last three months, but it's just that we built up such a surplus because that shipments to China, the increased shipments to China took so long to really get started because of the trade war. We've still got to work through all the freezer supplies. But cattle, beef, it's been another story. That demand has been very sharp. It's been pulling from our supplies. question is how much does it drop off? One of the things that would really help, and it looks like the forecast is favorable for that, is a warm-up in the month of April. And if we can have a warm month of April, a lot of people with cabin fever want to step out on the deck and do some grilling. That might help that beef demand some more to kind of sustain that domestic demand. Yeah, I think that could help a lot. We're talking with Arlen Suderman with INTL FC Stone. Arlen, we've been talking a lot on the program today. The, the biofuels industry got some good news. 
when the Trump administration did not appeal the Tenth Circuit Court ruling on small refiner exemptions. But as Brian Jennings with the American Coalition for Ethanol just told us, this is one of the darkest periods, if not the lowest period in the history of the ethanol industry. They're facing a lot of headwinds right now, a lot of issues, plants idling, plants closing. That means they're not buying corn. What's the ripple effect of that? Yeah, and that's yet to be determined. Basically, the head of RFA said that uh, we're shutting down enough ethanol capacity this week to uh, to equivalent to 2 billion gallons of production on an annualized basis. And we don't know how long this is going to go, but that suggests that if that's all the shutdown we do, and it may be more than that, probably will be, that if it was that, that would be about 690 million bushels of corn demand lost for, from the processors. That's quite a substantial amount. That would be partially offset as distillers' grains get tighter. We put more corn into our feed rations and offset part of that. So it give you a net about 550 million bushels. The current marketing year, we started into the second half of that. So it would probably be a, a cut of about 250 million bushels from the current marketing year. We've been encouraged by export sales of corn to China. Can that offset it? Right now, our contacts in China tell us that the demand there for U.S. corn, particularly in the southern China where it works right now, works very well right now, in fact, um, is probably about 80 million bushels. So that would not offset that. We'd still be at a net negative. So we're, we're still struggling to build a case right now for uh, sustaining any type of rally in the corn market particularly since we don't know how bad those cuts in ethanol production may end up being. So we are seeing, you've alluded to this a couple of times already, we are seeing buying from China as part of the phase one trade deal, obviously, and their needs over there. But is it enough, and is it enough quick enough to really boost the markets uh, here in the short term as we get ready to go to the fields? Probably not. Now, one of the things I continue to wait for is distiller's grains. There's a lot of interest in buying U.S. distiller's grains with talk in China, maybe three to four million metric tons, which would be a substantial amount and really help boost uh, those margins once again here in the U.S. industry. Um, But to do that, we need to see the anti-dumping duties lifted in China. That paperwork for accomplishing that is in process. But as everything else in China, you just never know how long that's going to take. And you hope the market conditions are still favorable once that paperwork finally clears. So that's the word that we're waiting on right now. All right, let's switch to soybeans. This, of course, is South America's time of year to dominate the uh, soybean market. What are you seeing there? Any surprises? Uh, There are some surprises. We've been hearing about dryness in the southern part of Brazil. And uh, so our team did a tour of Rio Grande do Sul, which is, I think, the third largest producer of soybeans in Brazil, and found that the production losses were much greater than originally thought, have lowered a production estimate. They haven't released, they're still calculating their total production estimate, which they'll release next week, that it looks like we're at risk of pulling that production estimate closer to 120 million metric tons maybe even below 120 million metric tons, which I think would be good for our fall soybean exports. Uh, China's been aggressively buying soybeans for July and August shipment out of Brazil, 
And if the lower production estimates verify, that means that they would start running tight then at that point, and we would have an aggressive shipping program to China probably in the first half of the next marketing year, similar to what we used to have several years back. We really have to go back to 2016 or 2017. We started seeing that tail off, more dependency on South America. And finally, Arlen, uh, in the uh, the big stimulus package that Senate passed last night, uh, there is money in there for agriculture, funding for the CCC. It looks like uh, help for cattle producers. How much of an impact do you see this having? Uh, fairly significant. We know that there is a portion of farmers out there that are having a cash crunch trying to put in this year's crops. It's not, it's not a major portion. Everybody would certainly like to be better than what they are, but those who are tight enough and credit lines are tight enough to affect acreage decision is probably a much smaller percentage, but for those, it can make a difference, and that can make a difference of several million acres flipping back and forth between soybeans and corn right now. So to get that aid to help keep agriculture floating while we try to turn things around and try to buy some time for the Phase 1 trade agreement to really kick in, I think will make a big difference for agriculture. I remain optimistic that we're going to see that effect of the Phase 1 trade deal as we get into the last half of this year and into next year. We need to help carry the farmers to that point. Have you changed your thoughts at all on uh, those uh, acres, what the planning intention numbers may be? I have to submit my estimates here later this morning, but right now from the data that I'm looking at, it looks like we're somewhere in a 93 million acre range for corn. Uh, that's a little bit lower than a lot of people have been talking about. Um, the survey was taken kind of before coronavirus hit, so it'll be interesting to see what USDA survey shows. And on soybeans, I think we're probably looking somewhere in the uh, 85 million acre range. And now a detention really on the uh, on the weather forecast and the, the windows of being able to get out there, and hopefully it'll be a little sooner than we saw last year for sure. Yeah, there there's a big difference in weather forecasts right now. Some forecasters mm-hmm. calling for a very wet April, and uh, the European weeklies came out yesterday really calling for a pretty dry April except for the south and into the Ohio River Valley, particularly the southern Ohio River Valley. My bias right now is towards the drier side, and I think that would be welcome news with the warm weather for April as well. And I think we'll see if that's the case. Farmers aren't going to wait around to take any chances waiting for May. They're going to be active out there and planting the crop. Mm -hmm. All right, Arlen, thanks a lot. Lots going on. Thanks uh, for your perspective. Stay safe. You too, and always good talking, Mike. Take care. Arlen Suderman. Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. Coming up next, we're going to talk with the president of the Missouri Farm Bureau, Blake Hurst, get his thoughts on uh, what's happening right now with COVID-19 and the shutdown of the economy and how we come out of this, and get his personal perspectives of how this is impacting him as a small business owner. That's coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. 
this week, as I have been taking my socially distanced walks of an evening, I have noticed uh, more and more people kind of getting out, working in their yards and doing a little little work out there. Just I'm sure just happy to be out of the house um, and being able to at least be in their yards. But I got to thinking, we're about to that time of year when people usually flock to the stores, whether it's the big box stores or the nurseries, whatever, to get plants and start doing some, you know, yard work, garden work, get things in the ground planted and up and going. And that made me think of Blake Hurst, president of Missouri Farm Bureau, who has a business of providing a lot of those plants to those uh, to those outlets. Blake, thank you for joining us. Uh, how is this all that's going on now is we don't know if people are going to be flocking to those stores or not. How does that impact your business? Well, um, first off, about a third of our sales go to fundraisers held at uh, largely but not totally parochial schools in Iowa, Nebraska, and Missouri. And so uh, <laughs> their kids aren't in school. So we're trying to... to the, 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 Organizers of the sales are trying to do those um, online. We have no idea uh, what our what our demand is going to be because obviously we, we we sell what they sell. We don't get to a, it's not a contract or at least an enforceable one. So we've got about uh, seven or eight employees here, and we're uh, we've cut their hours simply for social distancing. We're keeping them. We have you know a bunch of individual greenhouses. We're keeping them in. They're all working in different greenhouses. Of course, I have a you know a whole crew of grandchildren that uh, would typically be in school and now are uh, quarantined at the greenhouse. So if you'll go to Hearst Greenery on uh, Facebook or uh, YouTube, you can see some of the videos uh, that the grandkids have made. So we're trying to deal with it, um, you know, as sensibly uh, and keep keep our business together. But it is a real concern. Yeah, and how do you plan if you don't know what your uh, business is going to be or what the demand is going to be for what you're producing? How, how do you plan for that? Well, before this started, um, you know, we we had, we had those discussions quite often. Uh, my wife and I and and, and our, our kids that are working in the greenhouse with us. And look, we, we've already bought the we've already bought the plants, we've bought the potting soil, we've bought the pots. Uh, we're already heating the greenhouses. Man, we're just planning. Um, because because the costs are already sunk, uh, the marginal cost of one more one more plant of potted tomatoes is pretty low, uh, and and I, I think the demand is there. I think your point about people staying home. I mean, uh, you know, I don't know how many people tell me every year, well, I don't buy anything because when I go on vacation it's dead when I come back. Well, hey, <laughs> this summer you're going to keep it alive, so. Uh, it's going to be a question. The distribution is going to be our challenge, not the demand. Or at least that's what we're looking at. Yeah, there may be, there's a pent up demand that maybe people are going to be more in their backyards and doing that work. So, as you said, not they may not be traveling yet, but can they get to the stores? Will the stores be open to let them come in and, and buy? That's still an unknown. Yeah, I mean that's that's the question is how to get it to. I mean, it's, I you know I walked through on a toilet paper search. I uh, walked through a store yesterday and lots of shelves empty. Uh, now clearly, that's uh, that's bringing forward demand that uh, uh, what you know, just, just people hoarding as, as such, or at least being cautious. Uh, but the, you know, the distribution system becomes a problem. Well, we've got the same challenge: Is the garden center going to be open? Is the school sale going to go on? How can I get my product to the people that probably want it? My parents are 85 and uh, always big gardeners. And last Friday, you know, they're getting older. And, you know, my mom said, I don't believe we'll put out a garden this year. A week ago, she said, you know, 
we may need that garden stuff. I believe we'll plant. And so I don't think that's going to be very unusual. In other words, people saying, hey, if I can't go places, i got time to do the garden, and maybe I'll need the food. I don't think they will, but the point being, we're going to have people look to gardening as a, as a way to protect their families, and that's a good thing, but I don't know how to get it to them. Yeah, we're talking with Blake Hurst, president of Missouri Farm Bureau. Blake, let's look at the impact on, of course, the general economy and the ag economy. We are certainly, as it's often been said, in unprecedented times. Uh, uh, what, what are your thoughts on what we're dealing with right now? Well, I mean, I saw uh, yesterday on the news that a case was case was found in a processing plant, uh, and the plant is, uh, you know, clean, cleaning that worker's area and anywhere that he would have been, and, and continuing to work. And that's what has to happen. People have to eat, so we're gonna we're gonna find out that I think uh, we're gonna have a, a increased appreciation for uh, the people who take the take the food after it leaves our farms and, and the steps that it has to go through to get to the grocery store. And those people are going to be working at higher risk because we have to have that distribution system. We can, we can live without going to Applebee's, I guess, um, but we can't live without eating. So, so you have that worry. You have the worry of all the inspectors and everything else that, that uh, may not be very many per plant. Are they going to be healthy? Are they going to be where they're supposed to be? Uh, and clearly, everybody, it seems to me, as far as regulations and doing what they can do to keep the keep the distribution system working smoothly. Everybody's doing the right things and acting quickly. Um, and, and I was on a conference call with, you know, several hundred people yesterday with uh, Secretary Purdue. I mean, clearly they're doing everything. When people say, hey, what about this rule? What about this regulation? We'll look into it. We'll change it. We've already changed it. Uh, people are, are very aware, and I think acting responsibly as best we can. And the big question now is, and it's a big debate, how long can you keep the economy shut down? How do you bring it back? How quickly can you bring it back? Where do you bring it back first or all at the same time or, or wait? I mean, a lot of questions. And, again, we really don't have a playbook to fall back on and, and look at how it's been done before. Yeah, as I tell the people at Farm Bureau, uh, this is my first pandemic. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what to do. Uh, and, we're, and we're all playing by ear, clearly. Clearly, um, you can set all the rules you want, and uh, people at some point are going to say, I've got to go do this thing, I've got to do that thing, uh, where we're going to see people uh, resuming. <laughs> and, and maybe that's the best way to do it, do it slowly, do it only with people that feel they have to do what they have to do and, and sort of gradually get back to something resembling normal. But what a challenge we've got, and uh, all of us have to be uh, you know, praying that we make the right decisions because we got to do the best we can, and that's all we can do. Blake, thanks for being with us. Uh, stay safe, and uh, we'll we'll stay in touch. Thank you very much. You bet. Thank you. Blake Hurst, President, Missouri Farm Bureau. That wraps up for today. Thank you for joining us. Stay safe. Be careful. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow right here on AOA.